Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This is from 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not, that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, now, Allie, thank you for doing that. Like, you see, when there's good people around, they don't care to interrupt you when you're messing things up, uh, and that's good. All right, now, kids, wait a minute. Kids, before you walk out, you need to know something. Before you leave, there's another one among you. Did you know that? Morgan Aurora Sunquist was born on October, October 25th. Is that right? Okay, so we, we, did, we missed a week. We missed last week. Okay, so... Uh, we are excited for the Sun Quiz for David and Tabitha. Yes. Kids, you need to know your allies, the ones that are among you in the hallways, wreaking havoc and all that stuff. So that's important. Now you can go do your thing. Uh, let's see. Kindergarten, first, second grade is in Elevate and EGC today. And EGC today. Third, fourth, and fifth grade. Going to do some catechizing. And hey, Jason Dean. Did you get that door? Thank you. All right. Um, I am always grateful, uh, well, for numerous reasons. Um, uh, I am always grateful for Jeremy, but I, I love uh, Neville. I love the way that you uh, honor uh, those who have served in, in, in its proper perspective, and, and I am grateful for you uh, and the stories that you have shared and the way that you have served and the things that you understand that I don't uh, in that realm. So I am grateful for you uh, and for that, and uh, always appreciate that. If you don't notice this, Jeremy does our prayer every Memorial Day and every Veterans Day because uh, he, has, he has the ability to do these things. Um, so grateful for you, man. Um, all right. Uh, so I don't know if you were um, paying attention in uh, the, the uh, passage that uh, Allie read. I hope you were. Uh, but there's some interesting things that we're going to talk about today. And quite honestly, it hit me. We're, we're, we're going to talk about the Antichrist. Uh, and I will name a couple of names. Possibilities. Um, no. Uh, but uh, I just want to tell you right off the bat thinking through this all week. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to poke a little fun at it, and you're, it'll be okay. Uh, but thinking through this all week, this passage, and how heavy it is for John to write this. And when we're singing this morning, and the passage, uh, uh, the, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, it hit me because, dang it, I mean, there's a lot of power of hell and schemes of man that are happening right now. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, our battle is not against them. It's not against those people ever, ever, ever. 
Our battle is to remain faithful and trust. We'll get into that. But that hit me hard as we, as we were singing this morning. So uh, I wasn't emotional at all, and now I am. Um, so I want to start with a story that took place several years ago. You may recognize this story in the small college town of Ashton, Idaho. I don't know if, that, if this is going to ring uh, familiar for anybody. This, a, a woman named Bernice Kruger, reporter from Clarion, Ashton's town newspaper, was falsely arrested on prostitution charges after taking fo- a photograph at the annual summer festival. And then when she's released the next day, all of a sudden the film from her camera is destroyed. So. Um, there used to be film in cameras. Uh, basically, the pictures from her phone were deleted, to put it in contemporary terms. Um, Marshall Hogan, who's the owner and the editor-in-chief of the Clarion, decides to go to the town police and confront Chief Alf Brummel. He denies any wrongdoing on behalf of the police department, insists it was all just a big mistake, and then advises Marshall to drop the matter altogether Marshall doesn't fall for it. He ignores the advice of Chief Brummel and begins an investigation. And as this continues, Marshall and Bernice both begin to realize that they're on to something much bigger than they thought. They slowly uncover a plot from a group wanting to take over the town by buying the college. this group called the Universal Consciousness Society, a powerful New Age group. And when the society decides Marshall has found out too much, they take the clarion and his house, and they falsely accuse him of murder and adultery and molesting his daughter who attends the college who has unwittingly become part, uh, been pulled into this society. And when he and Bernice are caught up in a desperate attempt to keep the society from winning out, He is arrested and thrown in jail. She, however, escapes and runs off to find help. Meanwhile, a lowly pastor by the name of Hank Bush in the little little Ashton Community Church discovers that there's also a demonic presence in the town, and he wonders why all of this demonic presence has gathered in this town. And when he gets to be a nuisance, the society accuses him falsely and has him arrested. When Hank and Marshall meet in jail, they share each other's stories and all of a sudden begin to uncover and begin to put things together that there is something devious going on. Meanwhile, Bernice finds help. She makes contact with the county prosecutor, the state attorney general, and the feds. And when Chief Brummel finds this out, he releases both Hank and Marshall. And after they release, they team up against the Universal Consciousness Society and the demons working to take over Ashton in which they are possibly unwittingly, but, but definitively aided by this local demon gathering. Anybody remember this story? All right. This is the summary of the novel known as This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti, a staple in the 1980s and 90s youth groups. Uh, and it presents demonic forces at work. It presents the good people versus the bad people and the spiritual battle that has much to do with the battle for control of the town and the hearts and minds of the people. The New Agers versus the good Christians. And the Christians, just so you know, I'm going to ruin the ending here, the Christians eventually prayed enough that the angels could act and beat the demons and stop the Universal Consciousness Society from buying the college. Amen. Now, um, <laughs> yeah, we won that one, didn't we? Uh, full disclosure, I absolutely loved this book. I loved it, man. It was a thick book, and I devoured it. I ate it up. I don't love it anymore. Also, full disclosure, um, the reason I spent so much time just now retelling you this story of this present darkness is that I wonder if this might be the lens 
through which most of us have either been taught or just assume that this is the way that spiritual battles take place around us. Paul tells the Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers and the rulers of this present darkness. And I think these views might bleed into our understandings and our lens through which we see the world. And we talk about the Antichrist, and we talk about the end of the world, when we talk about spiritual battles going on, uh, that these views that are uh, entertaining, but not biblical necessarily, that these are, this is what is really going on, and that we can't help but really almost see everything, especially in our day, through these lenses. Uh, and this morning, as we look into John's words uh, to the church in Ephesus, I would like to submit to you that I, I do not believe that this is what Scripture would teach us in this same way or have us to believe about the work of demonic and spiritual attack, nor necessarily the work of the Antichrist. Now, let me then follow that up by saying I absolutely believe that there is demonic work uh, and darkness at, at work around us. I do believe very much so that we have a very powerful and brilliant enemy. And in fact, I think the battles that he fights are actually much more daunting than we would find in the small town of Ashton. So, we're going to dive into the passage. We're going to talk through some of the things that John brings up here. Now, here's the thing that I, I want to I kind of lay out before we get going. Um, uh, there's, there's some topical things in here that I want to address briefly, but I, as I ask, what would you want to know reading through this? Um, and so I'm going to try to address some of these things uh, that, that John brings up because there's some heavy issues uh, and then bring them all together with what John calls us to do and be. Uh, but the first thing he says is, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. My little children, again, I love John's pastoral kind of grandfatherly approach. It is the last hour. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you will see things like it is the last hour, the last hours, the last days, the final days, that day. There's a lot of references, even in the New Testament, to this concept. And it's not always clear exactly what the New Testament authors are referring to when they say it is the last day or the last days or the last hour. Um, I would bet, though, however, when we read that, we probably immediately put it into our own context. If you hear, my little children, it is the last hour, what, what, would you, what, what are you probably thinking? It, it, it's the end of the world. What? Oh, all right. I saw like an excited reaction. Um, Right? It's the end of the world. Is that most people? You think, yeah. John is talking about the end of the world, and obviously he was referring to 2,000 years later in America. Um, yeah, normally we think end of the world. And it's, that is one possibility. And when New Testament writers are talking about that day or the final days or whatever, there is, there is an element in some of those where they are specifically referring to the final culmination of all things. However, there are other areas that it's not as clear on. Um, I do believe that there will be a day when Christ returns, when he makes all things new. We talk about this all the time. Uh, I don't know what that will look like. There's some things that I don't think it'll look like, um, mostly made popular by uh, fiction uh, Christian books. But there are, I, I do believe that there is a day where Christ will return and make all things new. Uh, and the time as we have known it will be no more. Revelation gives us the vision of a heavenly city descending, us not needing the sun anymore because Christ will be there and he will be our light. And it will be good. However, there's another reference when we use these terms, uh, when, it, when we talk about the idea of the last day or the last days. It is that Christ has come, that the Jewish scriptures about the coming Messiah has been fulfilled and Christ has come, and we have entered into then these last days. One advent has taken place. Christ has promised he will return. And so now we await that return. Um, and Peter helps us out on that by telling us that a day with God is like a thousand years. So a thousand is the number not to be taken literally, but a long time. A thousand is like an eternal presence. So we don't 
We don't know. That's God's decision. But there will be a final consummation. But until then, we are in the last days. Does that make sense? So don't think of, think it is imminent, not necessarily that it is right now. Um, John has seen the church in Ephesus infiltrated by so many false and dangerous teachers that were trying to draw people away from Christ that he is urging followers of Jesus to take notice of that. The promise that we have in that day, in those last days, is that many will try to draw us away from our hope that is in Christ. And so John sees many teachers and many false teachers have come and have been teaching this. So we are obviously in that promised time where there will be persecution. And so followers of Jesus, be reminded of this. Not so that we can go to battle for the town college, but that so we are aware that there is constantly a work that is against us and against our trust and faith in Jesus. Um, and the goal, and, and here again, uh, we'll get to this again, but I'm going to say this often. The goal for the follower of Jesus is not to beat down uh, the, uh, the false teachers, either socially, culturally, politically, or militarily, uh, but it is not to beat them. The, for the follower of Jesus, the goal is to stand firm. This is what Paul talks about in his letter to the Ephesians, to stand firm in the faith by believing Jesus over and above the false teachers. So then Paul says, so that's where we talk about the last day. Then we have, they have heard that the Antichrist is coming, but already many have come. Uh, Antichrist is mentioned four times in the New Testament, and it's all by John. Paul brings up the man of lawlessness, which he's kind of referring to the same thing. Um, uh, so four times by Paul and then or by John and then once by Paul. Uh, so this is very prevalent and the, the idea of false teachers uh, that we see uh, throughout the New Testament. Second Thessalonians, um, Paul talks about a man who will come and even try to take a seat in the temple of God, the man of lawlessness. And, and Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation. There is actually a time that's already taken place by the time Paul writes this. Antioch Epiphanes, who comes along in the second temple, and he, uh, on a military tirade, he kills thousands of Jews. He goes into the temple. He builds a statue of Zeus and sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple to the god Zeus. That's pretty bad. All right? So if you're thinking like terms of Antichrist, uh, this guy... Uh, has done, I think, a, a, he set the bar pretty high. After him, uh, this military general, Roman general named Titus comes along and he marches into Rome and destroys the temple uh, of the people of God in 70 AD. And he carries back all the artifacts to Rome for, to put on display. Both of those things, when we hear the term Antichrist and we think of like this specific person, both of those events are, are pretty high up there on the list. Um, so I don't know, with those in mind and us not getting resolved that either one of those were necessarily the Antichrist, I don't know that there is necessarily going to be a person or many persons, uh, or a philosophy, or potentially a nation that will be in line to bring about the end of the world. I don't know exactly how that will play out. I don't know exactly who or what we are talking about when we say the word Antichrist. I do remember being in high school, sitting in the back of church during the sermon with my friend, and you know, literally doing anything but listening to the pastor, so I know how it goes. Um, and trying to figure out who had six letters in their last name, probably Russian, that was going to usher in the end of the world and be the Antichrist. Anybody else try to do that when, they, when you're in high school? This is, what, this, is what, this is what we spent time focusing on. Who was it going to be? Um, and uh, 
By the way, for either comfort or frustration, Obama and Trump both have five letters. So you've got to redo your theories. Um, and, and, and if we're going to mark it by that, we're on now the 46th false antichrist. Or, or an antichrist. I don't know. Um, all right. I do know, however, as John brings to light, there is always a spirit of antichrist that is present. He who does not acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, John tells us, is antichrist. Sometimes, as John brings to light, it's downright oppressive. Sometimes this is a false gospel that pretends to be Christian but is not. Sometimes it's simply a worldview that is opposed to Jesus and seeks to turn people away from him. And we need to be aware, certainly need to be aware, of false teachings in our day that would seek to lead us away from a trust and faith in Jesus. But it's also possible, nay, probable, that we have from time to time overemphasized this idea of Antichrist solely as a person that we are to stand in opposition against one way or another, instead of necessarily the false teaching that is there. Um, when we do that, much like my shenanigans in the back of the church, at, you know, growing up, we really begin to focus on the wrong battle. And we're trying to figure out who this is going to be. Uh, I have a friend who was a missionary to Mali, in Mali, Africa. Uh, and Mali recently had, uh, their government was recently overthrown. There, there are many Muslims and Christians in Mali, and I think this is pretty cool. In the villages, what they will do is Muslims will host Christian holidays at their homes so that Christians don't have to clean up their house and deal with the mess afterwards. And Christians, in turn, will host Muslim holidays in their home. And many of the villagers will actually gather together and allow them to celebrate at their home so that they can clean up for the others. That said, there are also many uh, Muslim extremists throughout Mali that everybody is afraid of. Uh, and recently, and my friend presented to this to me kind of humorously, though, I don't, it, though it, it loses the humor quickly, there was a coup uh, by one of the Muslim extremists to overthrow the government in Mali by the same guy that tried to do a coup about five or six years ago and didn't do very well. This time he got further and he actually overthrew the government and upset it. The point is, Nobody in Mali, Christian or Muslim, thought that this was the end of the world, thought that this was the Antichrist, or that this was necessarily of biblical proportions. This is the way things kind of go in their world, and they're used to it. Sometimes I wonder if for us as followers of Jesus in America, it might be good reminders that we are not the only society in existence, that there are people outside of us, and everything that happens in America is not necessarily the foretaste of the end of the world. Okay? Okay. I'm not saying it won't be. I'm saying we can get caught up in the wrong battle. The spirit of the Antichrist seeks to do just that move us away from trust, independence, and worship, and hope in Christ. Whether it is a specific person, or a philosophy, or a worldview, or whatever, it seeks to move our mind's attention and our heart's affection away from Jesus. Lest we think that it is only the universal consciousness society that steals our hearts and towns, I think it's actually a much more sinister plot from a much more ingenious enemy. Now, one more thing to cover quickly. And then, and then we're going to move into the thing. John mentions that those who are preaching false gospels and preaching against Jesus as the Christ have gone out from us, revealing that they were never of us. The us that John is referring to is the same thing he, he leads with. Those who have experienced Jesus, who have seen, who have touched, who have talked with Jesus, and who have fellowship with the Father and with one another, those are us. And those who have been teaching the false gospel have proven themselves unfaithful to that and have moved away from that and gone out. And so John is saying those who are deceiving have gone away. It's not necessarily, I've heard this, I've heard this used uh, for those who were being deceptive in their teaching, also those who were deceived and who walked away from the faith or who walked away from Jesus. And that we are in a time and uh, day and age where that happens often. And I've heard this verse used, I think, kind of pitting us against them, those who have walked away. 
And I want to tell you that I don't think that that is the heart of what John is saying here. In fact, John is trying to encourage those who are following Jesus to stand firm in their faith, not to take a position against people who have been deceived. And let me say by that, um, that doesn't mean that we just wipe our hands and turn against them. How, do, how are followers of Jesus at all ever called to be in relationship with those who do not follow Jesus? We're called to pursue them with love and grace and mercy. Stories are long, um, and there are always good and beautiful stories of redemption and faith uh, about people growing and returning to Jesus. So we're never, never simply to write people off. I think John is referring to the intentional false teachers here. Either way, what we're going to see here in a second is that they are not the battle. It is not us against them. All right. John, repl- John implies here, I'm not writing this to them, I'm writing this to you. You who have believed, who have been anointed by the Spirit of God with faith and trust so that you might have confidence in the completed work of Jesus and not be swayed by the continual false teaching. The goal of Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist is to move people away from Jesus, to deny our need for him, to interrupt our affection or our attention. And this is often referred to in scripture as a war, as a battle. It's a war for our soul. It is a war for our faith, for our hope. But it's it's acted out different than the way that we are used to when it comes to the idea of war. It doesn't line up with the good guy versus the bad people. This is not a war that is fought with man-made weapons or politics or elections or legislation. It's not a war for the culture. It is a war for our trust and faith, our very soul, that we may know and have confidence in the one who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. In the eighth eighth chapter of John's gospel, he calls, John calls Satan the father of lies. And in fact, he says when Satan lies, he speaks his native tongue, his native language. Um, And again, his end goal is to confuse frustrate, uh, in any way get us to deny Jesus as Lord. And we sang about this earlier. He cannot rob us from, his hand, from the hands of Jesus, but he can certainly wound us deeply. So what does this battle look like? Uh, John Mark Comer is a pastor, and uh, he, he recently resigned as pastor to, to begin doing his spiritual practice thing called Following the Way. Uh, and he was a pastor in Orla, uh, Portland, <clears throat> Oregon, uh, and I love the way that he thinks about culture and gospel and how we interact and what this war looks like. And what he says is if you look at scripture, you'll see three different elements of this battle. Uh, the, the Bible will often talk about our war against the devil, the flesh, and the world. And what he does is he says this is how this works, and we can see this at work in scripture. The devil, who is very real and very brilliant, um, <clears throat> he institutes deceptive ideas, there's the devil, which play to our disordered desires, there's the flesh, which then become normalized in a sinful society, there's the world. Deceptive ideas which appeal to, which play to our disordered desires and then become normalized in a sinful society. And I want to make this clear. This is not arguing for a religious society. A religious society is still a sinful society and can still normalize false ideas, which which we'll see here in in just a minute. Um, So... When we think of lies and we think of this is the father of lies, sometimes it's easy for us to think lies as the ones that are out there. Some kind of massive conspiracy theory like the Consciousness Society wanting to buy the college and that's how they're going to take over the world. 
Uh, one of my favorite conspiracy memes of all time is from G.I. Joe era. Uh, do you remember Cobra? The ruthless terrorist organization? Who were they? What was their agenda? Do you, remember where, do you know where they got their funding and their weapons? Hasbro, the same company that funded and weaponized G.I. Joe. Wake up, people. <laughs> Listen, it's easier to embrace the idea of spiritual warfare as this massive far-left, Antifa, alt-right conspiracy, pick your poison, and that these are the lies we need to wake up and take back our country. Cultural Christianity, cultural Christianity we tend to paint the battle as us versus them. We are the good people, and we need to expose the lies of the bad people. And the lies of those people. But a hard reality is that the lies we tend to believe are actually much more common and much more destructive. Let's maybe try some of these on. I deserve to be happy and my spouse isn't making me happy. If I had a better job, more money, more authority, then people would respect me. I can't believe those people. I would never be like those people. They are the problem. I'm a good person. I don't need religion to tell me I'm a bad person. This is one of my favorites. I cannot believe how judgmental those people are. Sometimes we have some more of the self-destructive ones. I will never be as good as fill in the blank. I blew it again. I am worthless. God could never love someone like me. These are not as made for Hollywood. But rest assured, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. We get so easily distracted by the potential of the big movements and the massive conspiracies and all the things that are going on with other people that we may fail to see the real battle taking place in our own mind and in our own heart. And we hear lies all the time. And instead of pressing in and saying what I really need is to be loved by Jesus and believe that this is actually true, what's easy to substitute is what I really need is iPhone 13. Right? More stuff, money, things. What I really need is that person. I need that person's respect. I need that person's affection. I need that person to notice me. What I really need is freedom, autonomy. Friends, our enemy is real and he is brilliant. He will get us focused on the wrong things. He will get us to hold the right things in the wrong way. He will get us angry and bitter. When we are in the wrong, he will get us to double down and hold on to that as tight as we can for fear of being found out that we were wrong or even just confessing that we might be wrong. When we're in the right, oh, hang on. It's even worse because he will remind us just how right we are. He will fan the flame of our pride. He will get us to doubt our salvation, or he will get us to presume our salvation. He will appeal to comparisonitis, just how much better or worse we are than someone else. He'll get us to roll our eyes when we should feel conviction. He'll get us to feel shame when we should feel grateful. He'll introduce deceptive ideas and get our desires, our God-given desires, all out of whack. We will want created things more than the Creator. Our Western culture has normalized and prized the issue of justice, which we've talked about before, is simply from Christianity. That is the basis of justice. 
And, and our culture has normalized justice and the fight for justice, which is good, but has completely removed the author and creator of justice, which is not good. We want atonement without forgiveness for, our, for the other side, and we want forgiveness without atonement for our side. We prize freedom as the absolute end of man, both sides. Either freedom to do whatever I want with my body, and you will be canceled if you ever dare question it, or the freedom to carry and speak my values as if they are God-given, and whatever pain or hurt or oppression other people or peoples might have experienced for my freedom is not my fault. We're easy to get caught up in all of these stories, and in our world, we think that the problem is always someone else. And that the answer is probably found in legislation. And our enemy capitalizes on our outrage and our confusion by appealing to our pride, our hurt, our vengeance, our bitterness, our guilt, our shame. And people respond in all, we, we I, we respond in all kinds of ways. We get angry, some walk away, some double down efforts to win an external battle and bring back the good old days. We feel the weight of hopelessness, we deny the problem, all of these things. Um, I, know, I know some of you have been listening, I've been listening to a podcast by an old friend, Mike Cosper, in which he uncovers and talks about the history of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, uh, former pastor there, Mark Driscoll. And I, we as a church have a ton of ties there. Uh, many of the stories that he tells are stories that I know well and some that I even was a part of and lived through. And it's been fascinating and at times has been vindicating and a lot of times just painful to listen to. And if you want to buy me lunch or a drink or something and hear more about that, I will gladly let you do that. Uh, but one of the, uh, during one of the podcasts, a bonus episode, Mike Cosper, who's the narrator in the podcast, is interviewing Josh Harris. Josh Harris uh, had written a book, kind of had a cult following. He'd written the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, at like 20, um, and was a pastor of a mega, mega church at, at a young age. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and Josh Harris preached the gospel. He preached the grace and mercy of Jesus and the necessity of forgiveness. Now, did he attach some extra weight to that? Yeah, we all do. But he, he essentially, he preached um, the gospel of Jesus. And he was a pastor at a young age, and he got wrapped up in the best and worst of all of the Christian industry. And whereas he did preach the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, the industry became overwhelming. And the hurt that others had experienced at, at his hands and at the hands of other Christians in power became too much. And he just decided to throw it all away and walk away from his marriage and from the faith. And in the middle of this discussion, Harris is recounting all of this. And even though he preached the immeasurable grace of Jesus, what he had seen played out, played out from so many Christians in power was quite the opposite. So he just walked away. And in that moment, Cosper beautifully, powerfully, pastorally uh, confronts him and it says something like this. He said, what if, what if instead of walking away because of all that you saw was wrong, what if you actually tried pressing in to the truth that you actually preached? What if instead of chucking it all, you actually said, you know what? None of this is what I'm actually preaching. What if you tried believing what you actually preached? Instead of seeing the problems and throwing everything away, what if you saw the problems and tried pressing in? Our enemy is real and is powerful. And he is at work. And I will tell you something. He is not just at work in the Democratic Party. And he's not just at work in the Republican Party. And libertarians don't think you get off the hook either. He is real. He is powerful. He will get us into chuck-it-all mode. He will tell lies to get us to fix our eyes on the problems with everybody else. 
He will focus on all the ways that we have been wronged and need to feel right. And we will ignore all the ways that we have been loved. Our insecurities, our fears, our shames will be tempted at every level to embrace the lies like Adam and blame someone else. Listen, we're going to come back next week and focus on how do we actually fight this battle. But the weapon that we have been given to fight against it is not political. It's not cultural. How do we fight this? Little children abide. Abide. Abide in Jesus. Believe first Christ's love and his grace and his forgiveness. And then don't like ignore, don't it's not don't do this. Believe that first. And and then we got a whole mess of problems to deal with. But believe this first. Abide here first. Paul tells the same church, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to withstand the evil in that day. And having done all, stand. Our battle is to stand firm in the faith to encourage one another. So much, of John's God, so much of John's letter here to the church in Ephesus is saying over and over and over and over again, love each other. Love each other well. You want to fight the enemy? Stop focusing on who the enemy is and how you're going to beat him. Love each other well. What does it mean to abide? It means to be together with Jesus and, one another, and with one another. This is what, this is what Paul, uh, this is what John talks about. We have fellowship with God the Father in Christ and with one another. And we re- need to remind ourselves often what we have in common more than what we have not in common. To be together with Jesus and with each other, to remind each other and be reminded by each other of Christ's radical love and forgiveness where the fragrance and the vulnerability of our, of our community, of this church, looks and sounds more like an AA meeting and less like a country club. Where we push toward faithfulness and fidelity and care for the poor and those pushed to the margins. Where we commit to the vocation of marriage or singleness as a high calling and not as personal fulfillment. Where we advocate for the powerless, either those who are powerless by economics or by age, caring for the unborn, the immigrant, the outsider, and where together we resist being ever, ever, ever put into a political category. And our allegiance is only ever to one king. This is easily, I've been a pastor for 15 years, youth ministry for five years before that. So I'm not, I'm not like David. I've been old and I've been young and now I'm old. I'm, I'm 40, what am I, 6? 46. Um, and, and talking to several pastors, pastor friends, younger and older, a lot of older. Easily, easily the most divisive and, and, and uh, just the hardest season I have ever even remotely experienced regarding division in the church. Easily, um, and not at the capital C church. Um, people leaving for pastors saying too much. People leaving for pastors not saying anything. Pastors leaving, being overwhelmed. Pastors leaving, having different convictions. All of it. Easily the most div- divisive time that I've experienced in the church, especially the American church. I struggle with a hardness of heart toward people I disagree with. Um, and I also have a grief when I see a mocking spirit from people that I do agree with, and my own heart as well. And I want to tell you, as the church, I hold these convictions firm. 
We don't need to take back anything. Okay? We don't need to win the world for Jesus. You, you know why, right? Jesus already won. We bear witness to that. But he won. We need to abide. We need to dwell. We need to stand firm. Just as we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, we need to walk in him. And we're going to look more at what does that look like? How do we do that? We're going to look more at that next week. How do you actually just abide together? There are practices. And I will tell you, I, uh, and, and then I'll give you the practice for the week. I had looked at faithfulness. And hopefully, if you've been here, you've heard me say we need to be faithful, right? But I think mentally and emotionally, in my mind, I think when all else fails, we need to at least be faithful, right? And, and if you ever heard that from me, I need to repent of that. Because when all else, nothing, we need to be faithful. We need to pursue faithfulness. That is the goal. That is the goal, faithfulness. That is the pursuit. That is what we're after. That is what it is to abide. It's not to win cities. It's not to, to do any of those things. The goal is to abide and stand firm and be on display for the world around us that they may see what does the city of heaven look like. It looks like this group of messed up people who are abiding in Jesus and seeking forgiveness and loving us even though we can't stand them. All right, the practice of this week for this week. Um, the practice for this week, both, I hope, will help define what, what it is to abide, um, but also give us some discerning eyes as we look in self-evaluation um, at some of the issues in our own lives. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to look at your life, and I want you to ask friends, family, those who are close to you, get feedback on this, and be, and be ready for honest answers, all right? Prepare yourself not to cry. All right, that's me. So if you feel that, that's me. All right. Um, what do you abide in? Where do you abide? What gets your primary attention and your most affection? What do you bathe in? What do you clothe yourself in? What gets to you? Where, do you? where does your time and money go? Could be sports, could be politics, could be distraction, video games, um, work, finances, maybe it's an emotional thing, shame, an addiction, social media, certain movie, certain shows, could be other relationships that are good but have become ultimate. What do you abide in? And then the second question as you're asking that, what does that produce in you? What's the fruit? Could be any number of things, fear, anger, pride, temptation. And this is not, hear me, all right? I want, you, I, I, want to, I want to make this known. I don't want you to go and look and say, what do I abide in? And then go, oh, I'm terrible. Great news. Bible levels the playing field on that. Yes, you are. So am I. Get that out of the way. This is not for you to heap shame on yourself. This is to be aware. What do I abide in? What do I spend my time in? Know your enemy. And then look at what it produces in you. And this is not to like, feel terrible and go, oh, I'm just terrible. This is to be aware. And then the third turning point here. This is not like a resolve, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better. Nope. That's the pathway to not doing better. <laughs> what does a vision for your life look like? And if you're already practicing this, that's fantastic. Here's the thing. The command is not necessarily to not engage in work or finances or politics or social media or all that stuff. But ask this question. If I were abiding in Jesus, 
how would that adjust or change my participation or my view of the fruit from these other things? How would discernment and prayer and just time with Jesus, first, the first of my time with Jesus, how would that change the way I interact on social media? How would that change the way I see politics? How would that adjust my views of finances or work or leisure or rest or relationships? What does it look like for me to abide? And again, this is not for you to shame yourself into better behavior. Our enemy is brilliant. And if you shame yourself into better behavior, guess who's winning? Our enemy. This is for us to press in and go, what if I actually believed more fully in all of these practical areas of my life that what Jesus said and has done was true? What would I look like? What could that do? Let's pray. Jesus, we have a powerful, powerful, powerful enemy. Um, and it's easy for us to say the devil is dumb while he's winning. And heaven forbid that we ever, uh, that we ever dismiss just how powerful he is and clever. And when we say that and we acknowledge that, then we confess all the more that we have an even greater victor and king and savior. If we fight this battle on our own, we lose and have lost every day of the week. Thanks be to God that this is not a battle we are given to fight. I pray for my friends that are here this morning, for my own heart, the things that I want to latch on to, the things that I want to further explain lest somebody misunderstood it, the things that I want to overdo, the things I want to hammer down on if somebody didn't understand it, and, and all of those things. Holy Spirit, we are freed from that. Help me to see where I am believing the lies and where I just need to abide in you and with these fellow followers of Jesus. Help us to remind each other we are loved. Help us to love one another fiercely, even and especially in areas that we disagree, and it's hard. It doesn't mean we just dismiss those. It means we love each other all the more and fight for that. Give us grace and mercy. Holy Spirit, make yourself known. May this local body of believers that is far from perfect, may we be a people continually being remade to the image of Jesus, abiding in you with one another for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.